signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And uh, we just saw so many things that happened. Of course, those are man-made. But with, with regard to uh, what God was doing at that time, early on, became a significant movement that has changed the world. There were signs that initiated it that will call anybody to attention. And that's what it was doing back then in Acts chapter 2. We're going along in, in actually a thematic look through the book of Acts. We talked about the plan of God's kingdom, the power of God's kingdom. Today we look at the proclamation of God's kingdom. The proclamation of God's kingdom. And it's there we're talking, going through different messages that declare the power of God's kingdom, of what he's doing in their lives. So if you do have your Bibles, you might remember, or you go through your memory, of what actually happened in the book of Acts. It was a unique, special time that was happening, and people were just really wondering what was going on. First of all, Jerusalem was crowded with throngs of people from all around the different parts of the world. And just think about the local people. They were listening to strangers speak in your own language. If they came from maybe a place in, in nowadays Turkey, and they went to Jerusalem and heard these local Jewish people speaking to them in different languages, they were wondering what was going on. It's amazing uh, when people hear me talk in another language. They say, you know, what's happening? Uh, I see sometimes a, a little Chinese child listening to me says, is he Chinese? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're looking at me. You know, but you know, it, it, it really strikes them. Why are these people speaking their own language? Or think of it the other way. Here, you, you know they're from where city they're from. You know their accent, right? But they're speaking some other language. To them, it's gibberish. To them, they can't understand. Why are they talking such cra so crazy? This was what happening. But more than that, there is one other thing that was happening in Acts 2, which perhaps was more significant than anything. They were listening to these people testify that Jesus, this one that was killed just a number of weeks ago, was alive. I mean, dead people don't come alive. What are they talking? They're not only talking about it, they're preaching it. They're declaring it to everybody that he's alive. And they're so convinced. And they're just astounded what was going on. We do ask, because they were asking this very question. If you remember, in Acts chapter 2, do you remember? They were saying, in fact, these people must be drunk. They must have had a lot of sweet wine. You see, things were so significantly changed for them. At 9 o'clock in the morning, you know, Peter would just say, no, it wasn't because of this. Something has happened. And it's this very something that Peter was talking about is what we want to talk about today. Because it's the basis upon which any of us here should place our faith in Jesus Christ. So as we go through this, we're just going to go through a logical presentation about the explanation of what happened, verse 14 to 21, chapter 2 of Acts. The second, verse 22 to 36 is the focus on Jesus Christ. Thirdly, verse 37 to 47 is the exhortation to respond, to believe that message. First of all, we're going to talk about the explanation of what was happening here in Acts 2. Before we go on, though, I want to pray. Lord, we just want to thank you, Father, that there are many things we don't understand, but there are many clues 
in fact, what you call truths that you do declare to us. We ask in the name of Jesus, Lord, declare these truths to us. Even if we believe them, take them down to a deeper bearing upon our life and the decisions we make. Please, Lord, come and speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what, first of all, what were all these people, even including visitors from all around the world, there doing in Jerusalem? Well, first of all, we realize it's a day of, it was a, a celebration. It was called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks is what we call Pentecost. In Deuteronomy 16.9, it says, You shall count seven weeks for yourself. How many weeks? Seven. Okay. You shall, he says it twice here. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the Feast of the Weeks of the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 16.9. So what we find here is from the day of first fruits, they should count seven weeks and then they'll come up to the, week, the, cell, the Feast of Weeks. It's called Pentecost. Pentecost because it's 50 days. And yes, mathematicians, seven times seven is 49. I understand that. Um, <clears throat> but it's actually 49 days, and then they shall celebrate that. What we find is that the end of the first series, series of Israel holidays or festivals, we're in the first month of the year, like Passover, Okay, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then we have the Day of First Fruits. It was the day that actually was the third day after the Passover, and, and the same day that Jesus came alive. Okay, that was a feast. And it began, the Passover where Jesus died, began a whole series of program on the earth. This was predicted, of course, many thousands of years ahead of time, 1,500 years before Jesus' time that this would actually be kicking in a whole new program in the way that God was going to deal with mankind. It wasn't an accident, it was all planned. And so on the Feast of Weeks, which is actually seven times seven, 49 days, the 50th day um, would be actually the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And that would be the second feast that all the men of the Jewish men would come to Jerusalem and celebrate. This is pretty significant, you see, because the last time they were in Jerusalem was when Jesus died. And now they are here this time, and what are they hearing? Jesus is alive. Things were, they were wondering what was happening. And beyond that, of course, was this mayhem, you might say, that people are talking all these different languages there. All these different languages. Well, of course, I won't go on and discuss, there are three more feasts and they will be celebrated at one time, and they talk about Jesus' second coming. But there's the program. Very clear, very planned, what God is accomplishing. Not accidental, but very significant. Well, let's talk a little bit more about these foreign languages, uh, because Peter did. He doesn't actually say the word foreign language here in verse 14 to 21, but it was the topic of what Peter was addressing. Uh, they were saying, and let me read for you verses 14 to 21. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice. In other words, he started speaking out loud. I mean, some people are asking him. And he just turned to everybody and answered and said, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Third hour. They start the day at dawn when the sun comes up. Add 
three hours, that's nine o'clock in the morning. For it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And so Joel, they're quoting from the Old Testament here. And I shall continue reading. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. Your sons and our daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon the bond slaves, both men and women. And I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and in the signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is Peter's explanation of what's going on. Now, he actually goes into something much more than just their simple answer. And we'll go and explain that. First of all, I want to talk about the signs of the new era. The new era, the new time period that they started about. We talked about it with the feasts. Something new was happening. And he says here clearly, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. We should realize this is not just a token sprinkling of water or so, of the spirit upon a few individuals. Pour out just means it's just you know, ever flowing, going down, getting you all wet, uh, soaking you. He will pour out his spirit on all mankind. By all mankind, we should understand, he's talking about, first of all, all sorts of people. Uh, one is in terms of the foreign languages, evidence of the spirit's work. I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind, not just the Jewish people. Something new is happening. We'll talk a little more about that later. Uh, second of all, we see that he's working in all kinds of people. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your old men and young men, you know, see, have dreams and vision. And then all, even all, you talk about the different classes. Uh, your young men will see visions. But even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It was a significant impact on their lives. What God was saying at the beginning of this time, my spirit is going to go into the people of God and change them in a radical way. It's what Jesus said. You baptize in water, but uh, it won't be long before you be baptized in by fire. And this is indicating baptism by the spirit of God, when the spirit of God works upon his people. Notice again, now just in, in summary, this is to all people. It's not open, closed to a certain race, certain language, certain class, not just the Levites, not just the prophets. God is breaking through in a special way into all people's lives. And I want you to start thinking about that. What does this have to do with your own life? In what way have you seen, if indeed you call yourself a Christian or believer of Christ, the Spirit of God poured out in your life? You have to ask this question because this is the very promise that we're talking about here. Let's go on. That's the signs of a new era. But he also talks about the signs of the old era passing away. The old era. By that, we're talking about Moses. Notice, if you would, verse 19. What does he say here? Wonders in the sky. I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth beneath, Blood and fire, vapor of smoke, sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord. And it shall be 
that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be, what? Saved. Okay. So we're all asking, what does this mean? When was the last time they were in Jerusalem? Passover. How many days? 50 days. Okay. They were here just the last time, and they're all celebrating again. So what do you think is on their mind about what happened then? Wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth beneath. Now it is true, poetic prophecy is hard to rightly interpret. But Peter gives us a clue here and helps us to see, you know, what's happening right now in our age is, is all explained by what? Jesus. It's all explained by Jesus. You see, not many days previously when they were there, God was working in a mighty way. Do you know what happened? Signs during Jesus' death that were powerful. Wonders and miracles it talks about here. Things that were happening, even later connected to this, but probably not exactly what he's talking about, but signs of Jerusalem's destruction in 70 A.D., these are all signs that God has rejected the Israelite people. He has said no to them. And because of their rejection, it says in Romans 11, he said, I am reconciling the world to myself. Because they rejected me, a new covenant where I will include all. They were broken off the, the vine. I'm going to include the, the non-Jews in the, his plan. This is what the gospel is all about. But let me discuss a little bit more of these signs during Jesus' time. As I read this, listen carefully. This is from Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour. Now sixth hour, add how many day hours? About six? Okay, so we're about 12 o'clock noon. Okay? Now about to sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, until three o'clock in the afternoon. And it's describing what happened on that time when Jesus was on the cross. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. We have signs in the heavens, namely what? All pitch darkness at the brightest time of day. Signs on the earth, earthquakes. Radical, radical big earthquake. Rocks were split. We have signs. Dead people coming alive. And also the sign for the Jewish people that the actual curtain in the temple was torn, showing that now everyone has access through Jesus Christ into the presence of God. Peter was saying, this is what you see here. But let me just include here a little bit about signs of Jerusalem's destruction because this was following this. Because they rejected him, the new covenant was opened. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and upon the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves." Something will happen 
God has not totally rejected the Israelite people, but at a time, there's a partial hardening. And at this time, the gospel is going out radically to all the different nations and tribes and languages. So let's think about our own lives for this moment. We understand that he is talking to these people there at Pentecost. And you might say, what does this have to do with my own life? First of all, we must understand that this is what he was talking about. Right here in verse 16, I believe. But, yes, but this is what was spoken of through prophet Joel. In other words, he is trying to say this is what's happening. This whole prophecy is fulfilled here in Pentecost. Now, it's important because, first of all, in terms of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all mankind, and this was given evidence through how? The, the speaking in different languages. He's trying to explain this here. Not that speaking in different languages always means a, a fullness of the Holy Spirit, of God's divine, powerful spirit living in a person. No, but when you start all of a sudden speaking a language you never studied, never heard when you were growing up, being able to speak a coherent message in it, this is not just a gibberish that sometimes you hear about with the word tongues. Tongues should never be translated that way because that's an old English meaning language, foreign language. It's not meant to be gibberish. There's only two meanings for it. One is foreign language. The other one is the physical organ, the tongue. Okay? There's only two meanings. Don't think of it. There's an esoterical language that doesn't have a coherent meaning. That is going beyond what the word tongue means. They wrongly translate it when they put tongues in the NIV, the NASB, the King. King James is okay because that's what it meant back then, foreign language. But as we think about this, Let's think. The, first of all, we need to accept that the old era is past. The Mosaic Covenant, the law is past. And he was trying to tell them that. Because as clear, if you're not clear on that, or at least the Jewish people then, that they would never enter into the new one unless they knew the old was past. They were safely to proceed to the new. And it's because of this issue was not clear that Paul, the apostle, was persecuted so much when he went around the different missionary journeys. The second thing that we need to understand is anticipate the Spirit's work in the new era, the new era meaning the new covenant. We should not just think there's a religious ceremony here of just Christianity is just another religion. It's not just another religion. You must understand this. This is God breaking in to the world of men. And part of the world of men is what we call all that circle of religions and philosophies by which they try to understand and find some sense of meaning to it. But God's breaking in not with just knowledge, but his divine power in our life. And it's here we must understand the fullness of the power of the Spirit. The way Jesus walked was the way we ought to walk. And it's just that sometimes we don't think Jesus was different. That doesn't mean the Spirit can live in me in that way. But Jesus would tell you, that Paul would tell you, Peter would tell you, no, it's the same Spirit of God that lives in this people of God, but we do not know how to live in light of the Spirit of God in ourselves. The people of God are the temple of God, he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. We are the temple. The God Almighty lives in us, and there's nothing to hold us back. There's no sin that needs to say, you're an addict to sin, sorry, there's no way. No, you can't say that. Open up your mind. He's breaking through man's efforts of thinking that religion is the way. It's my good works. It's totally not that way. 
you see, there's something totally there. It's not just what I can do and what we hear in terms of uh, humanism today. We are to live by the power of the Spirit, not just even have the Spirit of God, I'm spiritual, I'm holy. We live by the power of Spirit and can love those people that hate us. So let's go on and think about verses 22 to 36, the second point, the focus on Jesus Christ. There's three aspects here. First of all, we find in 22 to 23, it is Jesus, the suffering Messiah. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now there is an advantage that we get to listen to this message. First of all, what is Peter boldly declaring here? That Jesus did what? Indeed. Miracles and wonders and signs. There are too many people that just go around and say Jesus was a good man. He wasn't just a good man in that sense. He wasn't just a model for us to think about and follow. He was doing signs and miracles, proving indeed that God was with him, that he was God himself. Notice how he says this, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know. It's like if I'm telling you this is what happened, you saw it, you know it, it happened right here. You're all witnesses. The significance of this is powerful because Peter was boldly declaring to thousands of people, and we learned that from verse 40 because there were many more thousands that were there, but 3,000 actually responded to this message. So thousands of people were there in the midst. And when you make a bold statement of saying, you saw these miracles, you saw this happen, what is he saying? These things really happen. If you have a doubt, go back to testimony and witness. A public testimony here of Jesus' wonderful miracles, his wonders, his assigns. Not only to this, but notice that he says, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross the hands of godless men and put him to death. He's talking about what happened to Jesus those 49 days ago. And Peter was sure to implicate them in this crime. You nailed him to a cross by hands. In other words, you used the Roman government, the godless men, to put him to death. It is your guilt, your crime that put him there on that cross. Peter is very powerful. And I know this debate was it the Jews, the Romans, who put Jesus to death. But realize as he goes beyond this, that this was not just an act of mankind. God saw this all part of his predetermined plan that Jesus would actually die. This was not an accident, in other words. If we go back to the feast, this is what the feast of Passover clearly stands for. Jesus the Lamb dying for his people. This is where the year began. All years afterwards was started from this day when Jesus died. This was the beginning of time for them. And it pointed to the new era that would be taking place. 
Did Jesus die? I know there's still some people say, no, he didn't die. He just looked good, you know, and he's kind of made it through somehow. I, I, that was the Passover plot was the big thing when I was in high school. They have all these stories. He didn't really die. I mean, here's witness. Here's testimony. And, of course, many more, but I'm not going to go into that. But Jesus, the suffering Messiah, he really did die. We have to ask, did he die just for the Jews? No, we have to come back to our own lives and say, hold it. We understand here that Jesus did not just die for the sins of man, for these Jewish people, but for our sins too. It was here that we should begin to understand there's a, a great understanding of our sins, our conviction, our freedom through what Jesus did when he died for our sins. As it says in Isaiah 53, he bore the sins, our sins, upon him. So what we find here is actually the suffering Messiah, verse 22 to 23, and verses 24 to 32 is the risen Messiah, and in a moment we'll look at ascended Lord in verse 33 to 36. So let's go continue with the risen Messiah, verse 24 to 32. God raised him up, verse 24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Uh, who raised him up? God the Father raised him up. It was God's power. He was dead. He raised up. If he didn't really die, there's no resurrection. It was the end to agony, putting an end to the agony of death. Now, is it just Jesus' death or death itself? It seems like that began to put a death as a whole. For those who believe in him have life, and the sting of death is gone. Not just to Jesus' death. But it's impossible to be held by death. Some of you have seen uh, the Chronicles of Narnia with Aslan. He came alive, you know. I mean, but this is the significant. Nothing could hold him back because it wasn't his fault, his guilt. And when Jesus died, he was a fully righteous man. He took our sins on him, and therefore the full wrath of God came upon him. He did die, but because he was essentially perfectly righteous man who carried out the law in full. Death could never hold him back. Death is for the sinner. And he rose. He rose from the dead. And if we look at verse 25 to 22, we won't do that, but we just find that, uh, again, it's another prophecy of old describing the Messiah, that indeed he would die. Not talking about David, but talking about Jesus, the one who would come, who couldn't, and he's quoting here, verse 27, nor allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Uh, so, again, this is the prophecy. So we need to ask here, what difference does it make that Jesus is alive or not? Some people, we, we talk a lot about the death of Jesus and the significance. How about the resurrection? The resurrection is, is key. If we talk, look at the death of Jesus, it's where our sins are born. But tell me, who is going to represent you before God for your sins? You know, if Jesus had to come alive, he is the one that's totally interceding for us all the time, now as our mediator, as our great high priest. He is the one that's there. If he didn't come alive, he never could ascend. If he wasn't ascended, who could pray for you? as we read in Romans 8. Who would send the Spirit of God would not be spent, sent out because that is linked with Jesus' resurrection. When I go up, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit back. He predicted this in John 14 to 16. If he is not Lord, who is Lord? 
This world is going from bad to worse. There's no guarantee that the world is going to shape to God's program and God's kingdom. There would be no Jesus is Lord. He'd be dead. But Jesus indeed is the living Lord. He's the risen Messiah. In verse 33 to 36, we look at the ascended Lord. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, was, he has poured forth this, this the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, verse 35, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Very, very heavy conclusion. Let all know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, meaning Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, you have been looking for the Messiah thousands of years, and you just put him to death. You just rejected the one that was to give you life and love. How could you ever do that? God's precious gift, his son, and you killed him. You crucified him. The most powerful, horrible death there is. You did it. You're guilty. Your fault. But he's Lord. He's come alive. What did you just do? You mean he's Lord? He's risen? He's ascended? He's going to judge us. What did we do? We rejected his favored one. His gift of life we rejected. What's going to happen to us? Do you see what they're thinking? Rightly thinking. For they spurn the Almighty God. Let me just go on here. Notice when Jesus was ascended, he poured forth this, which you both see and hear the Spirit of God. As it says in Romans 8, the Spirit of God is poured forth in each person that comes to know Jesus Christ. This is God living in us that empowers, directs, helps us to commune with Him, with the Father through the day. This is not something that we need to look for in a special experience. This is what happened. It's already a special experience when we find forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Notice, uh, I won't go into it, but it, you know, it's, it's tempting to talk more about uh, what some people call the Trinity. The word Trinity is not used in the Bible, except maybe in 1 John. We're not sure about the translation there. But in verse 33, notice, Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay? What the scriptures do say, and in other places they affirm that they're saying, but they're different uh, in their ways, but that they're all present, all coexistent, all co-eternal, all working together, carrying out both creation and redemption plans. And though we don't understand the details we don't have to accept the word particular, but we should accept the concept that this is what God is doing. This is how he expresses himself. God is with us now. He's with us in the Holy Spirit that lives in us. This is very uh, true. 
and we should not think that it's not true. I mean, this is what we should understand of the Holy Spirit, that it is God himself who lives in us. And there's many other verses here. This is just painting the overall picture of, of this concept. But Jesus is Lord. There is a great contention within what we call modern evangelicalism, whether you can just accept Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. Uh, this is the most silly thing, and only people who don't really read Scripture carefully could even think about such uh, doctrine. Uh, Jesus is Lord. I mean, what does it state here? How can we say he's not Lord or that he's not my personal Lord? What Christians are saying or so-called Christians are saying that I can gain Jesus as my Savior and live a reckless life if I want and still be assured of heaven. What they're saying here it has nothing to do with whether Jesus is Lord. But what they're doing is spurning in their own life, trying to gain a ticket to heaven and yet live a lustful life. If a person wants to live a life from their own flesh, let it be known that they are still of the flesh. They haven't been born again. If you have a gift of the Spirit of God, a new life that comes into you, that gives you a, a yearning for holiness, a desire to live a holy life. And that will be in every true, genuine Christian. So you say you're battling with some sin. Ask yourself, do you really want to battle with that? Do you really like doing that? Is that really where your life is at, your heart's at? If it is, then no, you haven't been born again. You need to be saved. But on the other hand, because the Spirit of God's in you, you're going to have a yearning for that holiness. You want to be like Him. You want to be like God. You want to put that sin away. That struggle gives evidence of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Jesus is Lord. He's the King of kings. He's coming back. We saw the feast. The third set of feasts is when He comes back. The program ends. Verse 27 to 40, 37 to 40, we have the exhortation, the last part. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as are the Lord, our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Convicted hearts, because they knew how they had spurned the righteous one, the God Almighty. And then let me just say that this isn't just them, but it's us too. If God has given us his son, and yet we think we can just get along with our own form of Christianity and kind of put Jesus in a cage, or think, well, he didn't really rise from the dead, it's that kind of religion, you're off. You're wrong here. You're spurning the God Almighty. He came alive. There were witnesses. There's witnesses to his miracles when he was alive. There's witnesses to his resurrection. He's alive, and you're spurning him just as they spurned him. What was the response? Let's look carefully. Verse 38. Repent was the first thing they needed to do. Repent means to turn around in their lives, to say, wow, I've been thinking, going the wrong way. I need him. I need to turn away from my sin. I need to find some healing from that. Repent means the same as faith, but the opposite side of the coin, so to speak. Repentance is the turning away the other direction 
Faith is that other direction by which we put our trust in God. Baptism is the second. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. There are some groups that make baptism a uh, unnecessary point. I understand if you want to say baptism is unnecessary in terms of whether one could be saved. And if I came to know the Lord and I died before I was actually baptized because, uh, well, I, those, those is, okay, okay, that's not an issue. But if we're saying, yes, I've, I believe, but I just don't want to be baptized, what makes you think you repented? But Jesus says, be baptized, but you don't be baptized. And I don't care if you're eight years old or 80 years old. Why do you spurn the Lord and not be baptized? What is it in your heart? Baptism is signifying what has happened in your life. You put off baptism, what are you doing? You're stating in your heart that I am not fully dedicated to the Lord. The word baptism means, literally means, put something in a dye. Like the water is blue, you put cloth in the blue, the cloth in the water, blue water, out it comes. What color is it? Blue. Okay. Same thing with baptism. The baptism actually means dipped. Dipped into the water, and it comes out changed. It's signifying there's a change of loyalty, change of commitment. It was very clear that if any of those Jewish people there would be baptized, they would be following Jesus as the Messiah. It's the same for us. And whether it's a common ritual and therefore has less in this meeting, it is no less important that we are baptized and follow Jesus Christ. The importance is that we are fully committed and loyal to him, and we are not hanging around in this uh, midst of confusion. Notice you gain forgiveness of sin. I, I, for the Jewish people then, it is amazing. They nail Jesus to the cross through godless people. I mean, it, I mean, it would, it would have been better if the Jewish people actually nailed him to the cross. I want you to understand. For a pa pagan, godless person to touch him and kill him was horrible. But they forced him, and, and they did that. So, But forgiveness, they could find forgiveness of sin. And the same for us. Forgiveness of sin. Whole forgiveness of sin. From whatever sin in your life, you say, oh, this one sin. No, he never, yes, he can, he will. He'll forgive all your sins. Find that freedom in Jesus Christ. And notice lastly, it's a gift of the, uh, that's given of the Holy Spirit that we all should do that at the end, end of verse 8. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's there as we believe we receive it. And that's one of the proofs all the way through the book of Acts, as well as reaching to all different people, as we see in verse 39 is the last point here. Promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord shall call to himself. There's that sense of God calling to ourselves, but there nevertheless holds for us our own response that we need to be saved. We need to turn. You say, well, it depends on whether God calls me. He's called you to repent. Repent. Be saved. Now is the time. You say, well, <clears throat> you know, some, uh, someone was just asking me, well, I was baptized when I was little. That doesn't count. It says, believe and be baptized. It doesn't say be baptized and believe. We got it all backwards in some parts of our Christendom. Why rest on an infant baptism when you didn't believe? When the whole purpose of baptism is confirmed that you believe. We mess things up so much. 
But he exhorted them, be saved from this perverse generation. Was that generation perverse? It was perverse. But you know, that's a generation that Jesus lived in with many miracles and healings. And there was a, they were conformed to the Old Testament laws. And could it have been that bad? Could it be worse than ours? Probably not. No, ours was definitely worse. This is a perverse generation that we need to be saved from. The world with all its entertainment trying to suck your soul into hell. It's there, trying to grab you with materialism, with self-confidence. Those things that steal away from your trust and focus in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just conclude. First asking, what about you and your life? Do not say that God has not called you. He has commanded every man everywhere to repent. Second of all, do not think that Jesus was only a good man. Jesus is alive and Lord over all. Do not think that being a good Christian is good enough. Live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not think that one does not need to repent, that you can just glide into a Christian faith or a faith of your parents. Never. You must repent. Acknowledge your sin. See how far you've fallen from God's standard, not yours. And do not think that the resurrection is unimportant. Without Jesus raised from the dead, there's no salvation. Do not think that your infant baptism is enough. It says repent and be baptized. You see, God's program is he's working in and through us. God's kingdom is one where Holy Spirit lives within us. This is the power of the gospel age. It is where God is in us and nothing can hold us back. It's like Joshua going to the land of Canaan. Nothing will stop him. And nothing will stop us. If we determine in our life to live by the power of the Spirit, carrying forth his fruit. This is the first of many harvests back in the day of first fruits and the first gathering in during that time of Pentecost. But it was a whole time indicating all the harvests that would come before he comes for the final harvest, which is the next set of feasts. We need to work hard in the harvest now. Sacrifice ourselves, dedicate ourselves, give ourselves to witness, to be his witnesses. And that's the third. The design of the gospel age is for God to work through us. That's his purpose. He rose, gave us the spirit of God, and says, it's your turn. It's your turn. What are you doing with your turn and your life? Are you saved? You believe in Christ? You baptized? Fully forgiven? Now with the Spirit of God in you, learn what that means and go forth in His might to proclaim His great name. Like Peter, like the many others who are doing the same. Jesus has died. He's risen. He's ascended. He's Lord. He's soon coming back. May God save more people. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the word of God that again reminds us that we have no excuse, one, to receive you, to accept you, to believe in you. All those witnesses, and yet we still don't believe. Oh Lord, forgive us for a hardening of our hearts. Second of all, Lord, forgive us for lessening the importance 
of this time that the Spirit of God works in us to proclaim your word. And thirdly, Lord, forgive us for just living a religious Christian life rather than one through the power of your Spirit like you did. We pray that you might help us, Lord, to catch a full understanding as we go through the book of Acts what the Christian life is all about. Bless us, O oh God. Empower us, Lord, for now is the day. It's a perverse and dark generation that needs to be saved. We need you. In Christ we pray. Amen.